Well, in an, there was an extensive study that was done um, last year, actually, in 2020, among adults in the United States, and this study showed that 60, 62% of adults in the U.S., uh, of the, those who responded, were experiencing some degree of anxiety. Um, that is not really shocking, considering how uh, 2020 unfolded. Um, and so I think my guess is that the other 38% were probably lying. Um, but we, between COVID and health concerns and then there were economic concerns and educational challenges and vocational job concerns, there were, there were all kinds of concerns. Then there were, we were an election cycle, a presidential election cycle, and so all of the anxiety that was wrapped up around that. And then there are other social and, and, and racial tensions. And, and so all of these things, I think, contributed to this, this concoction that just fueled anxiety and worry uh, in this nation, and so they didn't, the worry, the opportunities for worry, they didn't come in ones and twos, they came in swarms, it seems like, in the past year, and so I, Van, uh, Van started teaching a Sunday school class about the time we shut everything down, that's not why we shut everything down, but, um, but he started teaching a class on worry and fear, and I was in there for a few, for those sessions, and, and it was, uh, it was timely, and we didn't even know how timely it would be, um, but uh, it will still be timely when we get back to it and when, when uh, Van picks that up, Lord willing. Uh, because the reality is, while the number of, of anxious people in, in the United States has been up slightly in 2020, uh, the reality is that the majority of, of people, um, adults and teenagers, they struggle with anxiety and worry. It's estimated that in that same study, one-third of adults in the U.S., that's about, so I don't know, 50 of us, if we're a representative sample, will experience what would be classified as an anxiety disorder, which would be some kind of intense, prolonged, excessive anxiety. We'll, be, we'll, we'll, we'll deal with that at some point in their life. Um, so we are, we are quite fearful uh, anxious people, and I don't think this is something unique to the United States. This is something that's experienced worldwide. Ed Welch, who's written extensively on worry and fear, and I've benefited from many of his resources, and he's come and shared on, on, on other topics here in, the, in our church, but he says that all of our fears have this in common, and it's when we, when we worry, we're, we're making these negative predictions about the future. That's what it is. We're, we're, we're becoming prophets of doom and expecting the worst. And so we're worried that something bad might happen to us. Or we're worried that something good might not happen to us. In the, it could be in the very immediate future. It could be in the very distant future. But it's always looking ahead and, and seeing it in very negative light. And so the list of possibilities is endless. But we can see this common factor through all of our fears. So it could be as a, as a small child, one of the earlier fears. You know, will the, will the boogeyman come out from under my bed tonight and eat me? Uh, and so we're just, there's this anticipation of, is this going to happen? Uh, well, you may get a little older. Any eighth graders here, you say, will I get bullied when I go to high school next year? It's a fear. It's anticipating, wondering in the future. Or you get a little older, will, will my Instagram post get likes? How many will it get? And so we're, we're wondering, we're anticipating. Or a little older, will I be able to find a job after college? Get settled into a career? Will I have enough money 
saved when it's time to retire? Will I end up getting Alzheimer's like my mother? Will, will my dermatologist say this, you know, this mole on my neck or something, is, is, it could be cancerous? Will the real estate bubble burst before we sell our home or after we buy a new one? Will our culture eventually just kind of collapse morally and socially? And is that, is that going to happen? Will another virus or COVID variant just shut everything down again and, and bring everything to a halt? And we could spend the whole morning, we could spend the whole day talking about all the possibilities for worry. But what I want to see, and, and realize some of, our, some of our fears and worries are quite irrational, um, others are, are more reasonable, but all of them are these negative predictions about the future, whether they're justified or not. So the future seems scary. The future is scary. Uh, and so, I mean, if someone, if, if maybe your teacher, your coach, or your uh, parent, or uh, your financial advisor, if, if, if you're your doctor or friend, if they could guarantee you a bright future, you would listen to them, Right? But nobody can guarantee you that bright future. No one. No one except Jesus. And that brings us to this incredibly good news of this passage this morning. It's that since Jesus has been raised, church, the best is yet to come. So our our outlook on the future is, is different. Hope is alive for us because of Christ. That's what we see here. And so this doesn't mean that we won't have to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that we won't face real difficulties and troubles and trauma and all kinds of awful things in this life. That's not the promise. We will have troubles. Some of those troubles will be intense. Some of the threats that you face and anticipate will kill you. They will. But as David says in Psalm 23, we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be afraid. The Lord, our loving shepherd, is always with us. That's a constant. He's present. And, and we, listen, we will, future, dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I mean, this is this recurring theme in Scripture when it's talking about fear. It's this assurance that the Lord is near, He's with us, and there is a bright future ahead. And so that's what we see throughout Scripture, and I think that's great encouragement for us as we come to this passage. So we have to live our lives in light of that fact that the best is yet to come, that we have this resurrection hope that, that, that's throbbing in us. And so, listen, as, so now we turn back to 1 Corinthians 15 here. Resurrection hope was not alive in the Corinthian church, at least among some of them. They were being heavily influenced, if you remember, it's been a few weeks since we've been out of here, heavily influenced by this pagan Greek culture around them, and it, it impacted how they thought and how, how they particularly thought about the future and they thought about death and life after death. And so this, this Greek dualism of the day, it just, it, all that means is it pitted the, the physical material against the spiritual and the immaterial. And so the, the body, for instance, is bad. The spirit, soul, that immaterial part of us, that's, that's the good part. And so they, they thought that any thought then of the resurrection of our bodies after death, that was not something they wanted to believe. That, that they were hoping to be free from this prison house of the body at death. That was, that was the prospect and that they were looking forward to. And so this corrupted thinking in the wider culture, it found its way into the church. And that often happens, doesn't it? 
And so he says in verse 12, if you look back there with me, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Now he's writing to believers, and he's saying that because there were some folks in the church who were saying just that very thing, that there is no resurrection of the dead. They were saying the dead won't be literally, bodily raised from the dead in the future, after death. And so now Paul is going to have none of that. He makes it clear that this is our certain future hope. And so to make this point, he, he shows this connection that we've already seen in, earlier in this chapter between the hope and certainty of our future bodily resurrection, the connection between that and the reality and the certainty of Christ's bodily resurrection. So that's how the chapter begins. So back in the first verses of this chapter, he's saying the very gospel of Christ, it's about the death and resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection, resurrection is at the blazing center of this gospel that we, that we believed and the gospel by which we are saved, he says. And there's all these proofs showing that Jesus did rise from the dead. And then, in, in, and then on Easter Sunday, we looked in verses 12 to 19, and, and he, he plays this hypothetical what-if game, and, and he's showing us these implications. If Christ isn't raised, then, then it's disastrous. Well, today, he's kind of flipping that around, and he's going to show the implications of the fact that Christ has been raised and, and what that means for us as we think about the future. So last time, again, in verses 12 to 19, Paul was giving the kind of the tragic answer to the question, what if there is no resurrection? What if Jesus' uh, remains are have just kind of rotted away in some Palestinian tomb? What if, what if there is no future resurrection of believers? What if there is no resurrection? And so now in verse 20, you notice this pivot. You see it with those two words, but now. Verse 20. But now, and so he's shifting from the, the hypothetical to the factual. From, from what if to what is. But now, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And then he says what? And this is connecting to where he's going. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So this is what we see. We are, we are to be people, and we are people of resurrection of hope, church. Of resurrection hope. You know, in a world that is in denial that the best things are yet to come. We live in a world of despair. We're, we live in a world that's not thinking that there's more. And so we, we have to, we have to keep, keep ourselves tethered to this reality. And thinking of uh, just the, the, as we're going to walk through this passage, just think of kind of uh, as if you've ever had a boat or seen anybody tie up a boat to a dock anticipating a storm, all of the lines that are going and all the different points on that boat to, to keep it secure in the midst of that storm. I just kind of think of, of these truths that Paul is, is laying out here as these lines that are keeping us, keeping us from being blown away at, at the storm of, 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 of doubt about the future. So we, we are people of hope. So first thing, first line that we see laid down here is that our resurrection hope, it's anchored in Christ. It's anchored in Christ. And so, and, and when I say that, I don't just mean that it's, it's, it's a hope that's, that's just promised by Christ. That Jesus said, hey, there's hope. There's good days ahead. That's not, he does say that, but that's not all that we, I mean by this. And I'm, I'm not just saying that it's hope available because of Christ. That, that there's this potential that, that because Jesus was raised, that means we have the potential to be raised too. That's true. That's not what I'm saying. 
There's more being said here than this. What, what Paul is saying is that the resurrection hope that we have, we have by virtue of being in Christ. We are joined to Him. And this is an inseparable bond. And this is, this is what allows a, the anchor of our souls to just be firmly fixed in Christ. And so look at verse 20 again. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. It's what He is. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, there's language there that we're not accustomed to, even fallen asleep. It's just, it's just a euphemism for, for the death of a believer. And so remember back to our Sunday school series, the first one when we came back together, that Eric walked us through that embodiment theology that God has made us to be embodied souls. And so once we die, our, our souls, that immaterial part of us, that, that's, it's immediately taken into the presence of the Lord. And there we are conscious and we are content, but we are incomplete because we're, we're made to be embodied souls, because our bodies will be sleeping, as it were, in the grave, awaiting resurrection, awaiting the redemption of our bodies, Romans 8 tells us. And so Christ, though, he's saying, who died and rose again, he's the, he's the first fruits of, of believers who've died, who've fallen asleep, the first fruits. We even without understanding the Old Testament imagery here, but we, we get that language. It's like the first installment of the harvest. It's, I, I, I don't do a lot of gardening, but it, uh, that's a very exciting to you to get that first tomato off of that vine and that, that, first, that first fruit. It's a foretaste of things to come. That's the language here. And so uh, let me just give you some of this background. I mean, this is a commentator, William Barclay. He, he's explaining the background of this image. And in Leviticus 23, this is where this law of first fruits and this offering that was presented to the Lord is, is given. But listen to what he says. When the barley was cut, it was brought to the temple. There it was threshed with soft canes so as not to bruise it. It was then parched over the fire in a perforated pan so that every grain was touched by the fire. It was then exposed to the wind so that the chaff was blown away. It was then ground in a barley mill, and the flour of it was offered to God. All that was going on before the first fruits even offered to the Lord. That was the first fruits. And it, was, it is very significant to note that not until after all of that was done could the new barley be bought and sold in the shops and bread be made from the new flour. He says the first fruits were a sign of the harvest to come and the resurrection of Jesus was a sign of the resurrection of all believers which was to come. So the resurrection of Jesus is a, it's the first fruits of ours. It's the guarantee of something in our future. It's, there's this inevitability to this as a Christian. It is, if you're in Christ, because Christ has been raised, we will be raised also. I think of an image of a train. Uh, that that you, have, you have all of those train cars that are connected by couplings or whatever that's called. Uh, but they're connected to the engine. It, it, the only chance the train cars have of making it to the destination is if they're ultimately joined to the engine. But because they're joined to the engine, wherever the engine goes, the train follows. And so with that kind of image in mind, Christ, Christ is the engine. He is the, he is the first fruits. Where he has gone, we will certainly go. And so we are joined 
to Jesus, and he has been raised, and we are in him, so we will be raised. That's what Paul's saying here. Isn't this beautiful and glorious? And so there's this certainty to it. There's this inevitability to it. And he, and he goes on and it gets even better. He makes clear the link between us and Jesus in verse 21. So he says, for as by a man came death. Now who's this man? Adam. And by a man also has come the resurrection of the dead. Who's that man? Jesus. And there it is clear. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. Here's what he's saying. Christians stand in relation to Jesus the same way that all humanity stands in relation to Adam. Adam was this representative figure acting on behalf of all people who've ever lived. Like I think of a high-ranking uh, of, of high-ranking government officials who, who will enter into treaties and, and, and trade agreements representing the United States of America. And so as they are there, they're there, their representative actions, they have far-reaching implications for the whole land. And so, so it is. Adam acted as a representative. So when he failed to keep the covenant, when he ate the forbidden fruit in the garden, he fell into sin, and we, we sinned in him and fell with him. That's old theological language, but it's good. And as a consequence, he died, and we die. Death is the wages of sin. Death is the curse of the covenant. And so in Adam, all die. But here's the good news. Praise God, another man has come. A greater than Adam. A second Adam. Christ has come. He did what the first Adam, first man, did not do. He kept covenant with God. He obeyed perfectly. He, with him, God was well pleased. And so more than that, he not only kept the covenant himself, he paid the penalty for Adam's covenant breaking. He paid the penalty for our covenant breaking. And so the covenant curse, death, it was satisfied in Christ. The curse was poured out upon Christ when he died on the cross. And so that now we see verse 22, in Christ shall all be made alive. That's what's behind that. And so if we are in Christ by faith and no longer in Adam, Christ's resurrection becomes, uh, be, makes our resurrection an inevitability. Not just a possibility, but a certainty. And so Jesus, the second Adam, he undoes everything that Adam brought upon us. And so we, we, uh, I don't know if some of you were trained in evangelism using evangelism explosion. Anybody remember that? D. James Kennedy, who was a very helpful evangelism training uh, program. But, the, but there was a diagnostic question that was kind of essential or kind of the backbone of the, 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 the sharing the gospel with somebody. It was this, if, if you die tonight and if you stand before the Lord in judgment and he has to, and he has asked, asked to ask you, why would I let you into my heaven? What would you say? That was kind of the crux of where you were moving the conversation. And so you ask that question, and many of you have probably asked that question to people, whether you're familiar with EE or not, and you'll hear different types of answers, and you'll hear some of them quite often. Uh, I'm a pretty good person. Uh, I give to charity. I, I, I serve in my community. I, I go to church. I, I try to do what's right. And there will be this whole host of, 
of kind of self-reliant good works that are presented as evidence that God's surely going to receive me. Listen, Paul, though, here, he's making very clear that those are all feeble, insufficient answers to death's ultimate challenge. Unless you can say this, unless you can point to this and only this, you have no credible reply. And and so a version of this must be your answer if you're going to stand before the Lord, and it's this. I was an Adam. I was an Adam, and in Adam, I, I was guilty of the guilt of his first sin, and I'm guilty of the guilt of all of my sin, and I stood condemned. But now I am in Christ, and his righteousness is my hiding place. I was in Adam, guilty and condemned. Now I am in Christ who lives and reigns. And because he lives, so I must live as well. That's that's it. Can you say that today? Are you in Adam or are you in Christ by faith? There are only two options. There's no third. In Adam, there's only death under the wrath and the curse of God because of our sin, that sin that we're all born into. It's not because we're, one is exceptionally worse than the other. But in Christ who rose, there is glorious life. There is life here and resurrection life hereafter. And so Jesus is the only safe refuge. He's the only place where life may be found. If you are not in Christ by faith, I exhort you to trust Him today. Just your only hope is Christ and what he has done for you through his death and his resurrection, paying the penalty for your sin. Jesus paid it all. We've been singing this this morning. And, and so you, you, you say, I'm a sinner. I got nothing. I bring nothing to the table but my sin. And I need what you, can, and you only can give. And that's grace and forgiveness because of Christ. And you trust and you lay a hold of him by faith. And cry out to him now if you've not done that. If you are a Christian, though, dear brother and sister, since Christ has raised you and you are in since Christ has been raised and you are in him your resurrection hope is secure it is your future is bright now you may be drowning in despair right now this morning you may have walked in just crawling in scratching in to try to get through the door and you are just a, a, a moment away from being just melting in tears you are you just feel despairing I don't know maybe not but maybe some of you are Maybe you're in in debt and you see nowhere out. Maybe you're just lonely. Maybe you are depressed. Maybe you are grieving some loss. Maybe you are heartbroken. Maybe you're afraid. Maybe you're in physical pain. Maybe you're stressed out by school or work and just feel totally overwhelmed. Maybe there's some unreconciled relationship that keeps you up and it's just churning and eating you up. It's easy to despair. It's easy to give up hope. We, We groan. Paul says in Romans 8, all creation groans. Listen to these words. For the creation waits and with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Listen though, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly, what? As we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Listen. 
Christ arose, you are in him, you will rise. There's hope. The best is yet to come, and that is guaranteed by virtue of our union with Christ. That's the first line. That's the main line. Second one follows, is that our resurrection hope will become reality at God's appointed time. It's going to become reality. And so our res- resurrection hope that we're talking about here is not some vague, kind of nebulous idea that, okay, there's bright days ahead. I don't really know what they are. I don't know how it's going to work out. No, we, we have their specificity to it. We, and we see that here in the passage. This, this hope that we have of being raised after Christ, our first fruits, will, it will actually be realized when Christ returns. And so Paul gives us this kind of basic simplified breakdown of how things are going to go down. He's not giving us the, the full eschatological timeline here, and so that he, he doesn't he provide us you know, an appendix to 1 Corinthians with all of these charts and showing how all of the coming events fit together. That's not what he does. We have to go elsewhere in Scripture for many of those details, but what he does gives, if, give us is this basic order of resurrection events. And so he's, he's not answering all of our end times questions, but he, he wants to awaken us in us a longing for the day, uh, for that day, so that we cry out with the Apostle John, even so, come Lord Jesus. This is what he's, this is what he's desire is for us as we encounter what he's written here. And so look at verse 23. But each in his own order, in his own order, the Greek word's tagma, and I, I just say that it's, it's, a, it's a military word. It's referring to a detachment of soldiers. And so each, each detachment, each, each group he's going to outline here participates in the resurrection harvest at its proper time. And so, but each in his own order, first tagma, Christ the first fruits, the past resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Second group, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Third, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. So first, Christ, the first fruits. We've seen that. Second, then at his coming, those who belong to him. And so after a period of time, that period of time is not given to us. It's been over 2,000 years so far. But at his coming, those believers who've died will be raised. And that, that's the harvest that follows the first fruits. Those who've fallen asleep in Christ will be raised. Now, describing this incredible event, uh, Paul writes to the Thessalonian church this, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. That's, that's it. And then he goes on. Verse 24. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So after believers are raised, and the church is taken up, what does he say? Christ will reign. He will reign, and and during Jesus' earthly reign, his rivals will be conquered. And at the end of that reign, death 
itself will be destroyed and believe, unbelievers will be raised to final judgment, to face judgment. And even death, we know from Revelation 20, is going to be cast into the lake of fire. And so there's, I'm not going to give you a lengthy chart, but I, I do want us to just kind of see how this is laid out for us in Paul. And so there's, there's a, a short breakdown. It may be too, too small to see on the screen. I don't know if you can throw that up there, Luke. I don't know if you'll be able to read that or not. Um, uh, you don't have to raise your hand and show who has poor eyesight. Can't read it, but if you're a front, this is the advantage. You know, you get to choose where you sit. So who, I can't fault you for sitting at the back anymore. Uh, I look forward to the day when there's no RSVPs and I can shame people again, Eric. Um, no, just kidding. Uh, but, he, but there's this three-stage kind of resurrection process. Christ, the first fruits, so I, then, then the church age. That's what we're in, the red this is the gathering. This is when we're gathering saints into the church through preaching the gospel, making disciples of Christ. We're awaiting Christ's return. That's where we live now. And so there's this gap of time. So far, 2,000 plus years. And then those who are Christ are raised. And that, that begins this, this kingdom, this thousand-year kingdom of Christ reigning on earth and, uh, with the resurrected saints. And then third... There's this, the, the unsaved dead are raised and death is destroyed. The end of that period. And so at that point, everything in the universe will be submitted to the worship of Christ. And notice what he says in the, the transfer of the kingdom back to God the Father. That's, that's showing that, that, that the, the earthly kingdom of Christ during this thousand year reign will be coming to an end. And all of the redeemed then, when the, when the Son hands the kingdom back to the Father, all of the redeemed will continue to live in this eternal state under the direct kingship of the Father and the Son. And that will happen in what the Bible calls the new heavens and the new earth. I ran out of space on the screen, so we're not going any farther than that. But we read about it in Revelation 21 and 22. And so then, we'll, at that point, God will be universally confessed, praised, worshipped, and served as the all in all. Verse 28. Isn't there a wonderful glory to all of this? He's not trying to confuse us here. He's not, this is glorious and this is coming. Faith will be sight. We will see him. And doesn't, doesn't this awaken a longing in your heart for that day? That's what should happen in our hearts as we see this. That's the intended effect. We should be moved to say, come, Lord Jesus, come. I'm longing for that day. I'm longing for the world that's yet to come. I'm longing for the day when, when death is dead and Christ reigns and all evil forces are destroyed and God is all in all. I, I do not... Paul says, he asked that, that's why I had Mike start in verse 19, but I just say, I do not have hope only for this life. No, my hope is a resurrection hope. This is what we ought to confess. This is what we have confessed together, even in reciting the Apostles' Creed. And this day, this day is coming. This is that second line that keeps us tethered when the storms come that causes us to doubt this. This is future reality. Christ's resurrection, it was the first domino in this cosmic domino rally. The first domino has already been pushed over. Christ has already risen, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. The last domino to fall will be death. Then life, eternal life with God. And nothing can stop that last domino fall from falling because Christ has already been risen. 
Now, sometimes I think we have a kind of a narrow view of the resurrection and its implications. And maybe this preacher is guilty of fostering that. But we can, we can argue that the resurrection proves that Jesus is God, and it does. We can, we can argue that the resurrection proves that we will be raised, which it does, obviously. We can argue that the resurrection proves that the Bible should be trusted, which it does. We can argue that the resurrection proves that, that we are justified, which it clearly does in Scripture. But we, we sometimes stop there. And we, for, we can forget the, the cosmic significance and implications of the resurrection. We will rise. Death will die. God will reign. That's, this is what's at stake. There will be no rival in the new creation. There will be no evil, no enemies, no death. No disease, no cancer, no racism, no abortion, no poverty, no pollution, no viruses, no sexual dysfunction, no child abuse, no, no relational problems, no loneliness. None of these things will be allowed in the new creation since God will be all in all. And the reason we have this hope is Christ is risen, we are in Him, we will rise Death will die. God will reign. He will be all in all. This is, this is our hope. Third, third line. These last two will be quicker. A resurrection hope matters now. It matters now. I mean, we're saying all these things that are coming, so yes, there's significance then. I'm just saying what Paul's going to do is he's going to draw back and say, hey, this matters now, how we live and he, and he does so in, a, in an interesting way. And so he turns a corner in verse 29, and he's, he's continuing to build his case for the reality, the certainty of our future resurrection. And so he asks some questions to the Corinthians, and he does, you see it starting in verse 29, and he's asking these questions to show that the hope of the future resurrection, it matters in the present. It shows up in how we live now. And so without future hope, without that future hope, there would be present pointlessness, futility, Despair. And so he's, he's laid out this kind of shorthand schedule of coming attractions. All, all of them are set in motion by Christ's resurrection. And now he's, he's playing the devil's advocate again, in, in a sense, but in a different way than he did earlier in the chapter. And so look at verse 29. This is the verse that we've all been waiting for. And as we read the passage, what in the world is this talking about? But he says, otherwise, again, he's kind of turning now. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? And we're saying, what are you talking about? Being baptized on behalf of the dead. There is all kinds of speculation. <laughs> there have been all kinds of suggestions offered as to what Paul's referring to here. The Bible, no Bible Knowledge Commentary uh, says this, there are up to 200 explanations that have been given of this verse. So what I thought it would be helpful if we walk through all of those this morning... And just kind of, no, don't worry, don't, don't leave, please. It's going to be okay. Um, you, know what, you know what Paul means by this? You want to know what he means by this? Uh, me too. <laughs> I, fact is, I don't know. And, and neither do you, if you're honest. And, and not a single, that's what I was telling, talking with Howard about this, there's not a single commentary that I read that anybody said, this is exactly what this means. Nobody's certain. Everybody kind of comes to the I don't really know in the end. I think is what I think it might mean. 
And so, and that, that's kind of where I'm at. So was this about baptizing people in honor of dead saints, maybe martyrs, and, uh, and so maybe people who shared the gospel with him, who died, and you're kind of baptized in their name? That's one idea. One, was this some kind of Christianized version of the pagan practice of baptizing in the place of dead, of the dead, like kind of like uh, vicarious baptism or proxy baptism for those saints who died without being baptized first? This is what the Mormons still teach a version of this today. Was this some process of washing corpses before it kind of in preparation for burial to demonstrate the honor of the, of the physical body which is going to be resurrected? Is this baptism on just behalf of Christ who died and Christ is the dead? I don't know for sure. <laughs> the, the, the Corinthians knew what he meant. That's for certain. What seems most likely to me is this, it, just by the basic language, that some, some who were denying the resurrection of the body, that's the point, some who were denying the resurrection of the body were also baptizing people in the place of those who had already died. And so, in other words, they're baptizing people thinking that the, the benefits of baptism would somehow apply to people who've already died without having been baptized. Make sense? And again, it's, if, if so, it's the same ones who were doing this are also teaching that the dead aren't raised bodily. And so, while we can't know for sure what the practice is, his point is clear. And it's this, is there's this gross inconsistency. You're, you're, there's this, this discrepancy between what you're doing and what you're teaching, what you believe. So it makes no sense to be baptizing on behalf of dead people exactly what that means, we don't know. But it doesn't make sense to do that if there's no resurrection of the dead. So Paul's, he's not endorsing this, he's not commending this practice at all, whatever it is. It may actually be something he strongly opposes. Uh, and, and they would know it. He would have already communicated that to them, but it's just not clear in this, in this letter. But his point is just to show this inconsistency between this faulty belief they had that there is no resurrection and their practice, which is a curious practice. If there's no resurrection, the practice is empty. It's dumb. It's futile. Notice, and, and notice he does distance himself from it. He, he doesn't say, we do this. He says, there are people who do this. So I'm just saying, that, that's as best as I can do. Let's move on. But this isn't the only way the resurrection matters now in, in terms of our worship practices and our sacraments, those kinds of things. It has far more profound implications. And, and he, again, he asks questions to drive this home. Verse 30, why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? Why live like this? Why, why suffer for the gospel? Why die every day preaching and teaching and planting churches and traveling and, and just being beat up everywhere I go? Why, why give up comforts and privileges and, and, and rights to make disciples? Why risk our physical lives for Christ if there's no resurrection hope? If the dead are not raised, we shouldn't just embrace that Corinthian motto and just be all in and say, hey, eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. That's, that's good enough. Just live it up now. There's a, there's a reason that Paul and the apostles and, and other believers in the early church and throughout church history, there is a reason we have been willing to lay down our lives for the spread of the gospel. And the reason is the hope of resurrection. Christ is risen. We are in him. We too will be risen. We'll, we'll be raised to live forever. Our resurrection, our future hope, it matters now. That's the point that he's making here, I think. 
Why, why endure suffering? Why face adversity? Why press on? Why, why not simply live for pleasure and ease, doing everything we can to minimize pain, to insulate ourselves from troubles and difficulties in life? If Christ hasn't been raised, then we won't be raised. And suffering is empty and it's pointless and meaningless. And our service for Christ is empty and meaningless. That's what he's saying. But if we have resurrection hope, our service now, our sufferings now, they take on totally new significance. Paul can say in 2 Corinthians that these, these light and momentary afflictions, which were anything but light and momentary in our estimation, that they're preparing for us this greater weight, this surpassing weight of glory that's beyond all comparison. He's saying because Jesus has been raised, it is all worth it. It is all worth it. Suffering, listen, suffering only makes sense if Christ is risen and we are in Christ, and we, which means we too will be raised. But because that's true, it makes, we can, we can press on. That's the third line, fourth line, and then we're done. Our resurrection hope, it's this precious truth that must be guarded tenaciously. And, and, and I say that to, I hope that that can help us as we enter into these last two verses. So verse 33, do not be deceived. And then he gives this, he quotes another well-known proverb in Corinth to make his point. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. So listen, he's not changing the subject here. This isn't a new heading. In this letter, he's, he's not giving this, this random proverb that we can use as parents to drill into our teenage children, uh, teenagers as they go off to school or something like that. You know, I, I, I know the connection may not seem obvious at first, but he's still showing how the future resurrection hope matters now. So he's doing it. So he quotes his proverb, but he's not saying just stay away from the bad kids at school because you're going to get in trouble and eventually you're going to become like them. Is there truth to that? Sure, that's kind of what's behind the proverb. But what he's warning against is them being swayed and deceived by those who are denying the resurrection. He's saying, don't give an inch of ground on this. Hold fast to this truth. Don't become corrupted doctrinally in, by this false teaching, because if you lose this truth, if you lose resurrection hope, it's going to show up in all kinds of other awful ways. What's the connection between denying the resurrection and, and sinful living? Well, if there's no resurrection, this is where they were at in Corinth, in the popular culture. Everything's permissible. The body doesn't matter. Do what you want. And that's that Greek dualism. So Paul's telling them, guard this precious truth. Hold it. Don't be deceived. Don't give, a, don't give room to this teaching in your church. It's a lie. Sober up. Wake up from your drunken stupor because they were clearly already taking the bait on this. Stop sinning. Live according to the resurrection life that is yours and will be yours in all of its fullness because of Christ. When He comes. Alright, let me back up to where we began. We talk about fear and then We'll sing and go to the table. Worship there. Remember, fear, it's negative predictions about the future, isn't it? It's our fears, our worries, our anxieties. They're, they're helped, they're comforted, they're quieted by this truth of resurrection hope. They are best, the best things are yet to come. And so we have to live our lives in light of the fact that the, that, uh, that the best is yet to come. There's resurrection hope. 
Listen, though, there's one fear that continues to plague many of us, and it's fueled by unbelief. It's that we doubt God's love for us. We, we lack any sense of assurance that God is actually for us because of Christ. Even though we, we know that Jesus has paid it all, and, and, our, and we've trusted in Christ and is sacrificed, and, and we, we understand the gospel and we believe this to be true, we, are, we still are plagued by doubts and fears because of our sin. Wretched, wretched man that I am, Paul says. Who will deliver me from this body of death? The more we look inside of ourselves, the uglier it gets, doesn't it? It's dark. The more we may be tempted then to dread God's presence. Future, standing before the Lord, no. No. Dear brother, dear sister, this is not how we're to live. This is not how we have to live. We sing these words often in the old hymn, And Can It Be? No we sang it last week, no condemnation, now I dread. Why? Because Jesus and all in him is mine. Listen to the next line. Alive in him. My living head. Not just alive because of him. Not alive, and he said I could be alive. Alive in him. I'm joined to him. My living head clothed in his righteousness divine Therefore, bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown, what through Christ my own. This is, this is our hope. Our moral, our confidence, the reason we don't have to fear the future in this way is not because we've made some pledge or made some commitment or made some vow or have so morally reformed ourselves or have this record of, of good deeds or because we're so religiously uh, fervent in our commitments, our confidence is in the fact that by faith we are now alive in Him, in Christ. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. The table is set before us here to remind us of these glorious realities, church. And I pray that our hearts would be comforted as we approach it together but first we're going to sing of the finished work that christ has done on our behalf through his death and resurrection and then we will come and eat and drink together let's pray father we thank you we thank you that jesus christ is alive that he sits now today at your right hand that, that one day the the last enemy death will be destroyed and you will be all in all thank you for this hope one day, Christ, you will come and triumph. You will, and, and, and in the open display of your great glory. We long for that day, Lord. And we look ahead as we wait for that great day. And, we, and even now, we know that we are already seen as seated and raised with Christ. And yet, because Jesus was raised bodily from the dead, so too we will be raised from the dead. This is our hope. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.